the Jodcast. On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me a Jodcast in an observatory. With Adam Maverson, John Field, India Leclerc, Ian Morrison, Christina Smith, and Chris Wallace. The Jodcast, December 2013. Hello, and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Indy, and joining me in the studio today are Adam and Christina. Hi, guys. Hello. And first off, we'd like to congratulate Libby Jones on passing her viva with minor corrections. So, well done, Libby. And another member of the Jodcast team is moving on and moving upwards. In the show this time, Chris interviews Dr. Emilia Calabrese, Ian Morrison and John Field take a look at what's happening in the December night sky, and we bring you some astronomical odds and ends. But first, before all of that, here's Stuart with this month's news. This month in the news, the truth about the Kelly-Binks asteroid and NASA's latest journey to Mars. Asteroids that enter the Earth's atmosphere are notoriously hard objects to study, because they usually will arrive unannounced and are visible only for a brief time before either exploding in the atmosphere or impacting the ground. In fact, in recent years, two of the larger asteroids that exploded in the atmosphere went largely unstudied because the only information which was available came from satellites or distant infrasonic sound stations. Even meteorites that impact the Earth, like the one at Sutton Hill in California in 2012, can only give a partial picture of the life of an asteroid, because we are limited to only studying the chemical composition of the surviving fragments. Such information can be used to imply the origins of the meteorite, but without the direct observations of the asteroid entering the atmosphere, it is impossible to deduce its original trajectory, or even original size. So when... Earlier this year, in February, an asteroid exploded above the Russian Urals in the skies above the city of Kelyabinsk, and the event was recorded by thousands of cameras on car dashes and on the side of buildings. Scientists had access to an unprecedented wealth of information to investigate the asteroid. Scientists have now reconstructed the full story of the Kelyabinsk asteroid, and last month published the conclusions to their studies in both the journals Science and Nature. By calculating the speed of the asteroid, which was measured to be moving at about 50 times the speed of sound upon entering the upper atmosphere, and the brightness of the final detonation, which was briefly brighter than the sun, they have found that the asteroid had a mass of 12,000 metric tons and was about 19 metres in diameter, or about the size of a house. When it exploded at about 35 kilometres above the ground, nearly all of the mass was vaporised into dust and gas, with the surviving fragments recovered, weighing in at a total of less than 800 kilograms. The largest surviving fragment smashed into the frozen sheets of Lake Kerbarkel, 60 kilometres southwest of Kelyabinsk, and its recovery was mostly thanks to a nearby security camera catching the moment of impact. All this information about the Kalyabinsk asteroid has revealed one new important finding. By modelling the asteroid's entrance into the upper atmosphere, we have been able to retrace the trajectory of the asteroid by thousands of years and have found that the asteroid originated from the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. More interestingly, though, they have found that there is a clear link between the orbit of the Kelyabinsk asteroid and the orbit of a much larger 2.2-kilometre asteroid, which was found in 1999, called 
86039. For several millennia, both asteroids have shared intersection points at both their closest and furthest approaches to the Sun. The chance of this occurring at random is remote. This implies that perhaps at some point in the past, the Kelyabinsk asteroid and 86039 asteroid may have been the same object, and that the Kelyabinsk asteroid may have been formed by a chance collision between 86039 and some other piece of solar system debris. Using the model of the orbit for the Kelyabinsk asteroid, it was possible to deduce how much energy would be required in a collision with 86039 to send a fragment as large as the one above Kelyabinsk on a course towards Earth. The scientists found that it would only require a relatively small push when 86039 was at the periapsis of its orbit to produce the Kelyabinsk asteroid. The most important idea to take from all this is that we are now able to confirm the sort of materials that are present in the asteroids that make up the asteroid belt, because we now have both chemical structure of the asteroid from the meteor in Lake Kabarkel, and the confirmed origin from the videos that captured the asteroid's descent through the atmosphere. Since it is thought that the asteroids in the asteroid belt have remained largely unchanged in their properties since the birth of the solar system, knowing exactly what materials lie within the belt help us constrain theories that allow us to deduce the origins of planets like the Earth. Also in the news last month, on Monday the 18th at about half past six Greenwich Mean Time, the Martian Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution Satellite, known as MARVIN, was launched from Cape Canaveral on board an Atlas V rocket. The primary goal of MARVIN is to measure volatile gases in the Martian atmosphere, such as water, carbon dioxide or nitrogen, and determine the processes involved in Mars losing its atmosphere over the course of the planet's long history. When MARVIN reaches Mars, it will enter an elliptical orbit with a period of about four and a half hours, where it will stay for the year-long duration of the mission. Marvin's orbit will take it both close enough to Mars to experience drag from the atmosphere and far enough away to be able to take images of the entire Martian surface. Over the course of Marvin's year-long mission, it will be utilising its several onboard instruments to conduct its investigations of Mars. The primary instrument is the Imaging Ultraviolet Spectrograph usually referred to by its anagram, IUVS, which will be used to map out the different quantities of various volatile molecules within the Martian atmosphere by measuring the unique frequencies of light they emit. However, the focus for the IUVS will be different at each stage in Marvin's orbit. At the furthest point from Mars, the apoapsis, it will be measuring the overall levels of the molecules in the Martian atmosphere, and then, as it approaches Mars again, and reaches its nearest point, the periapsis, the instrument is turned to point straight down and measure local variations in the quantities of the molecular construction of the atmosphere. The second instrument is called the Natural Gas and Ion Spectrometer, or NGIMS, which deals with measuring more stable elements that tend to not form molecules, such as helium or argon. 
NGIMS is not a camera like the IUVS instrument and requires direct contact with the atmosphere to be able to measure its contents, therefore requiring Marvin to dip down to just 80 kilometers above the Martian surface where the atmosphere becomes 10 times denser and NGIMS can start taking atmospheric samples. The manoeuvre will be done several times over the course of Marvin's life, and the short periods Marvin spends at these lower altitudes will be the most precarious of the entire mission after the launch on the 18th of last month. The final instrument on board Marvin is known as the Particles and Fields Package, and is in itself a slew of different instruments and tools. The aim of the Particles and Fields Package is to constantly keep track of the effects of the sun how strong the solar winds are, and constantly measure the highly variable and weak Martian magnetic field. Marvin's goal, as stated earlier, is to track Mars's atmospheric decay at the present time. It will do this by measuring what is there now from the ultraviolet emission using IUVS, and physically using NGIMS. Then by keeping track of how the atmosphere changes over the course of the year-long mission, and especially how it changes in relation to solar activity, it is hoped that Marvin will uncover some of the unknowns about Mars's atmospheric past. For example, how quickly did Mars lose its atmosphere when the magnetic field stopped protecting Mars from the powerful solar winds? Or what sort of atmosphere we would expect to find on Mars when it was young, with oceans and continents and weather like it was our own planet. Thanks for that, Stuart. Now we have Chris talking to Dr. Emilia Calabrese about the Atacama Cosmology Telescope. Today in the Jawcast, we have Dr. Emilia Calabrese from the University of Oxford. Hi, Emilia. Hi. Hello. So you came to talk to us today about ACT. Uh, what is ACT to begin with? So ACT is an acronym for the Atacama Cosmology Telescope. It is a um, telescope located in the desert of Atacama in Chile, looking at uh, the sky in the microwave uh, frequencies, um, and trying to get uh, an image of a very faint radiation uh, arriving to us in the microwaves and carrying with it uh, basically the imprint of the universe evolution and composition. Okay, so could you briefly explain what uh, the cosmic microwave background is? So the cosmic microwave background is the most ancient light that we can ever observe in our universe because um, it is a radiation that was uh, generated uh, after a few seconds after the Big Bang and then it was released when the universe became transparent and since that moment to today it travelled across the universe and uh, arrives today very faintly, but at the same time with lots of information about all the evolution of the universe, and as well as um, information about what happened in the very early times of the universe, where we will be never able to uh, to go to to see and to test uh, things. Okay, so ACT is one of these cos- cosmic microwave background experiments. On the Jogcast, we've heard a lot about Planck, because it's had a big big part of Jodrell-Planck. So. Could could you explain why ACT is necessary, given that Planck exists? Yeah. So I would say that Planck and ACT are complementary, and they both need each other in different ways. Uh, first, um, 
Going to space with the Planck satellites uh, allows you to have a better understanding in, on what's happening uh, to very big separations in the sky. So if you uh, look at two different points of your sky and you want to understand if those points are in communication with each other, if there is a correlation between these two points, uh, and you want to see very uh, large angular separated points, you need to go to space. And this is something that you can't get with ACT from the ground. On the other side, uh, you can't bring to space uh, a very heavy telescope first because it will be uh, expensive, you need more money, and also because it's hard to control a big telescope from space. But to have a bigger telescope allows you also to have a better resolution in your measurements. And so if you build on the ground a bigger telescope, you can reach a better resolution and to uh, do measurements complementary to the Planck ones and have a full understanding of what's happening at all scales with the combination of the two experiments. Okay, so you're saying that, yeah, so just kind of, you're saying Planck is kind of the large scale and actually has a small scale. Exactly. Could you briefly explain, like, are there any other particular things that you can find with these small-scale experiments? Yeah. The point is that uh, when you look at uh, scales so small and with the resolution that uh, ACT can achieve, you start being sensitive not only to the radiation, the cosmic microwave background radiation that you want to catch, but you start having in your data lots of emissions from other things in the sky, for example, clusters of galaxies or single galaxies emitting. Um, and so you start having uh, somehow a contamination for your cosmic microwave background data. Um, and the uh, key point in, in this thing is uh, to have um, observations of the same sky at different frequencies because you know that your microwave background radiation won't change with frequencies, but all the other emissions will change with frequencies. And so thanks to um, the fact that you have uh, uh, multiple frequency observations, you will be have we, you will be able to uh, separate out your cosmic microwave radiation and to characterize at the same time all the emissions that are present in your data. Okay, so could you give some kind of examples of these types of emissions that you're looking for? Yeah. So you have either galactic and extragalactic emissions. Uh, you you will have um, some thermal dust that is present in our galaxy and is emitting at some latitudes. Uh, you will have cluster of galaxies uh, emissions as well as a single galaxies emitting either synchrotron or uh, infrared radiations that then are redshifted to your microwaves and and then that you relieve, uh, reveal as microwave emissions in your data. Okay, so so, what is uh, synchrotron radiation? To you? So, the, you just go through what the cl- what the clusters affect. How do they affect your uh, experiment? So, the the galaxy clusters uh, will distort uh, your uh, photons of this radiation coming to you. Um, the interaction of your photons with the hot electrons in the clusters will give rise to a change in the temperature of the for- of the photons as well as in their frequency, and so you will get a distorted. Uh, radiation given the interactions of the clusters in the sky. While the galaxies themselves, um, according to uh, if they are um, very far from you and if they are emitting in a particular uh, regime, they will give you an extra signal uh, that is on its own and not affecting your radiation directly, but it will just appear as a sum of another contribution to your data. Okay, so the work you specifically do is this to characterize these extra contaminations into your into your experiment and then remove them. Is that is that the work you mainly do? Uh, 
yes, <laughs> you you do characterize them, and then you have two way to proceed. Either you remove them and you uh, produce a pure cosmic microwave background data set that you can work with for the cosmology, or at the same time you uh, keep track of these uh, other emissions in your data and you do a full analysis accounting for everything at the same time and studying how uh, these contaminations can affect your cosmic microwave background um, cosmology estimation or how um, these things are correlated between them. So what is this cosmic microwave background parameter estimate, cosmic parameter estimation that you mentioned? Um, so when uh, once you get to the data, for example, the cosmic microwave background data, you have to build a theory that uh, um, relies on some cosmological parameters to go to fit your data uh, with. Um, and this theory is generally accounting for um, all the things you know about the universe since uh, it was born, all the components, how they interacted between them, and how they reach us to, together uh, today. Uh, so at the end, you have a, a, a very uh, big uh, theoretical background uh, parameterized with a few uh, quantities that are directly related to the universe content and uh, primordial uh, universe fluctuations. And these parameters are the things that you want to go to look at at the end with this cosmic microwave background. So basically, you want to infer on universe properties using the cosmic microwave background. Okay, so the main aim for these experiments is to be able to correctly characterize these cosmological parameters. Exactly. And you said that ACT can help Planck. So in what way did ACT help Planck, and what particular parameters did it help? So... ACT helped Planck in, uh, uh, first of all, cleaning the cosmic microwave background from other contamination, because as I said, they are complementary and ACT was uh, adding power to Planck exactly in the regions where these contaminations start to be important. So you were able to um, use ACT data to clean the Planck cosmic microwave background data. On the other side, there are some cosmological parameters that leave a, a clear imprint on your cosmic microwave background only in a certain range of scales. And in these scales, um, you have an overlap of Planck ACT, um, and ACT helps you in uh, getting there the right cosmology and the right, um, let's say, CMB uh, answer to cosmology. Um, in particular, for example, you can think to constrain uh, very well the number of relativistic species present in the universe. We have, um, I mean, from the standard theoretical model, we do expect to, to have three light particles, uh, namely neutrinos in the universe. And with Act and Planck, uh, in that region of overlap, you can have a very good measurement of these uh, quantities. And so doing uh, fundamental physics uh, uh, that was present in their universe. Okay, so you've helped to pin down how many relativistic uh, particles other than the three neutrinos that we know of. Yeah, so, exactly. Uh, what else is interesting? These, um, are, these are the kind of the headline things that yeah. these cosmology papers come out with. Yeah, you uh, can characterize, uh, for example, the abundances of light elements in the very early universe, so like uh, how much helium there was in the very early time of the universe. And it is interesting and useful somehow because it's 
the base on which all the structures formed later in the universe. So uh, if uh, the, there was a certain quantity of helium, we would observe a certain kind of sky uh, today. If there was a different amount of helium, we would have observed a different kind of sky today. So it's interesting to look at these primordial quantities to understand what happened later uh, as well in the universe. And together with that, I mean, we have now a clear picture of, of the universe saying that the universe is dominated by, for example, a dark energy component that is something that we don't know uh, anything apart from the fact that it's driving the universe in an accelerated expansion today. Uh, and so you want to characterize this component and try to understand its physical properties, if it is present only today or if it was present also in the early universe. And so you can... Um, uh, with uh, the cosmic microwave background, you can also have an understanding on how this uh, uh, component uh, evolved and if uh, it was present at early times and what are its uh, properties, etc. So you can do any kind of fundamental physics that somehow led an imprint on the universe that you observe today. Okay, so you're mainly talking about the power spectra. Are there any other particular things that ACT can do which Planck um, fails to because of its resolution. You uh, have uh, complementary data also, for example, in other kind of observation like uh, detecting galaxy clusters with a particular effect, which is called the SZ effect. Uh, Act and Planck are complementary in getting like uh, a certain mass range for your clusters of galaxies, uh, uh, as well as um, positions in the sky, etc. Uh, so you really have, I mean, going to a better resolution with ACT, you really uh, are able to reveal fainter things that are hidden inside the Planck data. And that is either the CMB, either any kind of object that you can uh, see uh, when you have this microwave data. Okay, brilliant. At the end of your talk, you also mentioned the, the future of ACT. Yeah. Could you briefly explain what that would be? Um, so ACT was um, for three years uh, an experiment devoted to temperature measurements of the sky. Um, we now have a great measurement of the sky uh, almost at all scales. Uh, again, considering together Planck and ACT, you cover almost all scales you are interested in. Uh, the step forward is to go and to look for polarization of this cosmic microwave background and both Planck and ACT uh, will do that again in the same complementary way. So ACT is now moving to ACT-POL, which is uh, same telescope but uh, se uh, detector sensitive in polarization instead. And the feature is to get a measurement of polarization of uh, uh, the CMB, same way. Oh, brilliant. So what do you, what do you aim to try and get with this polarization of the CMB? So the polarization are, um, there are two main observables that you can get, get out with the, the polarization and they are on one side, they can be considered a confirmation of what you have seen in temperature because you do expect to see the same universe in the two observables. So they are, first of all, an independent proof of what you have seen in temperature. And on the other side, there are some effects that, let's say, have a major impact on polarization than compared to temperature, for example. For example, let's um, think about the affected species that I said before. Uh, the polarization of the CMB is determined by 
mostly the interaction, uh, the Compton scattering of your photons of two electrons present in the universe. Okay, so if you have uh, more relativistic species, it means that you will also have more electrons in your uh, universe because they are directly related to each other. And this means that you will have a different prediction for uh, the power of your polarization. And so measuring the power of the polarization will help directly in constraining better some parameters and some fundamental physics that that's happening in the universe. As well as there are some uh, polarization effects that are caused by the distribution of uh, the structures in the universe that we see today, like galaxies, uh, etc., that are things that formed in later times compared to uh, the cosmic microwave background radiation. And and so if you look at the, at the polarization, you can have, let's say that you can track the whole path of your CMB uh, from the moment it was released uh, to today, in doing that, you have uh, um, you have somehow uh, you get a pattern on what's the gravitational potential distribution in your universe, as well as what's the matter distribution of your universe, etc. So Could you briefly explain how you manage to do this tracking, and what what, what is this? So there is an effect that is called gravitational lensing. And it's basically uh, the idea that uh, if you have a photon from this cosmic microwave background uh, traveling across the different structures of the universe, they will interact with the gravitational potential of each structure. And so they will be deflected a little bit, but they will be deflected. And so reconstructing this deflection field will give you a direct idea on how the gravitational potential settles down in your universe. And the gravitational potential is given by the matter in the universe itself. So you will have a dip where you have more matter, for example. And so tracing these, this effect will give you um, directly a pattern of the matter distribution in your universe, for example. Brilliant. And what could you get with that? Because that sounds that sounds interesting in itself. But well, you've been talking about fundamental physics, so yeah, that, that that will give you uh, like first of all an idea of the dark matter distributions, which is the dominant matter component of the universe, and we still don't know anything about it apart from the fact that it dominates the gravitational field. As well as it gives you an idea of the geometry and the topology of the universe and how the the, the, the structures are related to to each other. And understanding these will help you in giving you an idea of uh, what are the components of the universe, how they evolved, and so basically doing uh, characterized, uh, characterizing all the uh, components of the universe themselves. Like, again, the dark energy I was mentioning before is responsible of the universe expansion, but if the universe is expanding, then the galaxies are in a certain way positioned in the universe. And if you track down the precise position of these galaxies and how they are located and how they interact with each other, you can have indirect uh, information on the dark energy, for example. Brilliant. That's very interesting. Thank you for, <laughs> thank you for coming along. Thank you. Thanks for that, Chris. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other things we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. So, for my odds and end this week, uh, I'm going to be talking about Jupiter's great red spot and how, in fact, it's been lasting a lot longer than current models think it should and um, how scientists have managed to create a, um, a computer model, a computer simulation of the great red spot, um, explaining why it's been lasting so much longer than we thought. So... 
The Great Red Spot in Jupiter is is the most noticeable thing uh, you can see on its surface. You can usually see it from a decent telescope if you look at Jupiter. And it's actually a storm which is about 20,000 kilometers long and about 12,000 kilometers wide. So about two to three times larger than the Earth. And winds at the edges can reach up to 680 kilometers an hour. The first observation of this storm was recorded in 1831, but it may even have been discovered as far back as 1665. And based on current fluid dynamics theories and and simulations, the Great Red Spot uh, should have disappeared after several decades, according to a fluid dynamicist at Harvard. But it has actually been there for hundreds of years. I mean, we've seen it since 1831 at the very least, so it's been there for at least 200 years. And so it's basically just a massive storm, a massive vortex of of gas. Uh, And there are many ways it can dissipate and lose energy. Waves and turbulence that are in the storm, around the storm, can can remove energy from the storm. It can also radiate heat. And we know that it rests in between two very powerful jet streams in the Jupiter's atmosphere that flow against it in opposite directions. So that may also slow down its spinning. Um, and some theories so far have said that large vortices like the red spot can survive by absorbing smaller vortices, such as eating these smaller hurricanes to gain energy. But it doesn't happen enough to explain the longevity of the red spot. And now, so two um, two fluid dynamicists have developed a model which actually takes into account vertical flows within the vortex as opposed to purely horizontal flows. Um, up till now, Many models are focused on the horizontal winds and the horizontal flows in, in the system because they're a lot simpler to model. But it turns out that when you when you look at when you include the vertical flow in your models, uh, these vertical flows can move hot and cold gases in and out of the storm and actually restore part of the vortex's energy, so that helps it last longer. However, the scientists uh, do warn that the model doesn't entirely explain the the red rate spot's long lifespan. And uh, and they still think that some mergers with smaller vortices also help prolong the star's life. But in any case, we're coming closer to understanding more about the Great Red Spot, which, by astronomical standards, is very is, is our next door neighbor. I mean, Jupiter's really close by, and we think we know a lot of things about galaxies and and, and even large scale structure in the universe. But when it comes down to it, there are still many mysteries to be found right on our doorstep. So, how old is the Great Red Spot? Do we actually know that? Uh, no, we don't. I mean, the only the only way of telling how long it's been there for is by looking back to the earliest astro- astronomical records. And so you, I think you can see it in, in photographic plates of Jupiter that date from the 1830s. Uh, we don't know actually how long it's been going, though. So, Christina, what have you got for us this month? Um, I've got something about Comet Ison, which you've probably all heard of. It's what some people are calling the Comet of the Century, or at least potentially the Comet of the Century. So Comet Ison is a sun grazer comet, which they're hoping that on the 3rd of December it will appear on the eastern horizon, and it's called Comet Ison. And the reason why it's so special is because, as, as I said, it was it is a sun grazer, which means that it goes it's going to be passing through the corona of the sun. And it's not really known exactly what effect that's going to have on the comet. There's kind of three three different scenarios that are thought to happen. Number one is it could have the same fate as Comet Lovejoy, which is the comet which went around the sun in 2011 and got destroyed by the sun, essentially. The gravity of the sun pulled it apart. And the size of Comet Ison is such that it's right on the edge of this limit as to whether or not the sun could pull it apart, so it's not really known. Scenario two, it could fizzle out, essentially. It could use up all its ice and gas too quickly and, um, yeah, fizzle out. Or scenario three which is what everybody is hoping for, um, is that the heat will ignite all of the gases deep inside the nucleus 
and it'll get a very, very bright tail, which you'll essentially be able to see in the night sky and it'll be really, really spectacular if that happens and that's really what people are hoping for. And so there's a lot of people watching Comet Ison and a lot of telescopes are looking at Comet Ison. So, for example, NASA's Solar Terrestrial Relations Observatory, or STEREO, um, has been monitoring this comet and it's produced a new video. It's produced this really cool movie that you can see the comet and you see a bit of its tail going as it kind of goes across the view. It's really, really cool. It was taken over a two-day period. Post a link to that on the show notes. Um, and yeah, basically, when, if it lights up in the way that everybody's hoping for, astrochemists are hoping to be able to observe the chemical composition of this comet and see kind of essentially what it's made of, which would be pretty awesome. Oh, and it'll right. be spectacular. So has it already grazed the sun? Has it already gone past the sun or not yet? No, not yet. It's due to do so on the 28th of November. Okay. And it would hopefully become visible on the 3rd of December. Right, okay. If everything goes as it's hoped. Yes, <laughs> let's hope it just doesn't die a fiery death. Yep. So everyone keep a lookout for Ison. Fingers crossed, Comet Ison. <laughs> Adam, what have you got in store for us? I've got something quite different from the normal... Uh, astronomical observations we talk about on the Jogcast. So I'm going to tell you about the IceCube Neutrino Observatory. They have just discovered 28 record-breaking neutrinos, which have energies of above 30 tera-electron volts, which is 30 times 1 with 12 noughts after it, times 1.6 times 10 to the minus 19 joules. So it's it's low-energy but high energy for these little, essentially nearly massless particles. So why am I talking about this? Well, it's to have such high energy, these things must have been formed outside of the Earth's atmosphere, outside of the solar system, likely outside of the galaxy, so in some external galaxy. Um, and they've passed, because the neutrinos don't interact with any other matter very frequently or very easily, um, they must have crossed vast distances so that's a quite cool detection. This is sort of the start of a new branch of astronomy where you can observe particles from different parts of the universe. Um, and the way that they do this is, is really cool. So the IceCube experiment consists of around 5,000 digital optical modules, which are glass spheres, which contain detecting equipment for little blue flashes of light. And these spheres are embedded in the Antarctic ice between one and a half kilometers and two kilometers below the surface. So down there it's really dark and the pressure has forced all of the air bubbles out of the ice so it's really clear. And this means when a neutrino flies through the uh, the ice, on the occasion that it does interact with a water molecule, um, it creates another particle and then that particle is moving faster than the speed of light in that, uh, in the, the water ice. ice um, which leads to a burst of uh, Cherenkov radiation, which is what these these uh, digital optical modules detect. So um, recently these guys have found these photons, uh, which lead to the energy detection of these 28 uh, super high energy neutrinos, two of which have broken the 30 tera electron volt energy limit and are in excess of one peta electron volt. So that's one with 15 zeros after it. So these are very high energy uh, particles and I just thought this was an interesting development in astronomy usually we're just detecting photons of light but now we're starting to do more uh, particle physics but on a universal scale 
astroparticle physics. Astroparticle physics. Yeah, it's the future of detections. And, yeah, and the base of this Ice Cube experiment looks awesome. It looks like a movie set. <laughs> Coming soon to theatres near yeah. you. And now, telling you about everything but the neutrinos, here's Ian Morrison with this month's Northern Night Sky. The Night Sky, December 2013. Well, it could be a very good month. We're hoping that from about December the 3rd to about the 14th, we may have a comet, Comet Ison, shining brightly in the pre-dawn sky. More of that a bit later on. We also have Jupiter, now becoming quite prominent in the late evening and well high enough in the sky to observe. So it could, in fact, be a good month. What about the stars? Well, after nightfall, we have the great square of Pegasus setting towards the west. That's adjacent to the constellation of Andromeda, which of course contains the Andromeda galaxy M31. On the night sky page, I give a little star chart showing you how to find it. And if in fact you try looking around the time of new moon, then there's a chance of also spotting M33, the galaxy in Triangulum. Andromeda is the largest galaxy in our local group of galaxies. We're number two. M33 in Triangulum is number three. And the large Magellanic Cloud, which sadly we can only see from the Southern Hemisphere, is in fact number four. Moving across the sky, we come through Aries. Not an awful lot to see there. But then, of course, Taurus will be rising with that lovely cluster, the Pleiades cluster, up at the top right. Below that is the Hyades cluster. There's an interloper there, it's Aldebaran. The bright red star that we see in the direction of the Hyades cluster is in fact about halfway between. And then of course rising low initially in the east is that lovely constellation of Orion the Hunter. The three stars that make up his belt, you can track back downwards to find Sirius, the bright star in Canis Major. And below the central star of the belt, you should hopefully see a little fuzzy glow and with binoculars, you're actually seeing the rather lovely object, the Orion Nebula, a birthplace of stars. Up to the left of Orion, we have Jeveny, the heavenly twins, Castor and Pollux. So it's actually quite a nice area of sky to look at. That region, Gemini, Orion, Taurus, is one of the most beautiful regions in the sky. And over the next few months, that becomes increasingly apparent during the evening. And we shouldn't forget, of course, that looking high up and towards the north, we have Cassiopeia, the W shape, and then almost overhead, we in fact have Perseus. And between Cassiopeia and Perseus, we have the double cluster, a lovely object to look at with binoculars or a small telescope. So I do hope you enjoy just enjoying the night sky and the stars. Well, what about the planets? Well, Jupiter, as I mentioned, is becoming increasingly apparent. It rises about 7.30pm at the beginning of December and by late evening dominates the eastern sky. It's transiting at the beginning of the month, that means it's due south, at about 3am. And then it'll be about 62 degrees above the horizon, shining at magnitude minus 2.6 with a disk about 46 arc seconds across. Now, it's lying in the constellation of Gemini, very close, in fact, to the 3.5 magnitude star Wazat, or Delta Geminorum. Gemini is one of the highest constellations in the ecliptic, which is why 
Jupiter will be so high when it's due south and perfect for observing. It just doesn't get better than that, as some people say. In fact, on the 10th of December, Jupiter is just 15 arc minutes above Wazad. As the month progresses, it transits earlier, around midnight by the end of the month. There'll be lots of detail to see. With a small telescope, you can see the equatorial bands and you can observe the four Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. At appropriate times, you should be able to pick up the great red spot, visible as an indentation of the south equatorial belt. Well, Saturn. Saturn passed behind the Sun in early November, which implies, of course, it's now visible in the pre-dawn sky, rising at about 5 a.m. as December begins and by about 3.30 a.m. at its end. So it's a morning object. It's shining with a magnitude of plus 0.6, so it's a lot, lot fainter than Jupiter. The disk is now about 15 and a half arc seconds across. The really good news is that the rings have now opened up to about 20 degrees or so from the line of sight, so they'll present a magnificent sight. Sadly for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, Saturn is now lying in the more southerly part of the ecliptic, so even at opposition, when it's due south at midnight, its elevation will not get that high, about 20-odd degrees. Sadly, this will get worse for quite a number of years to come. Mars was in Leo last month. It's now moved into Virgo. It rises soon after midnight, shining at magnitude plus 1.2 as December begins. During the month, its magnitude increases somewhat to plus 0.9. And at the same time, its angular size increases from 5.6 to 6.8 arc seconds. So now, given good seeing, which is the amount of turbulence in the atmosphere, it is possible to see markings on its salmon pink surface, such as the polar caps and Certis Major. So I think we can say that Mars's current apparition has really begun. As it moves down across Virgo, by the very end of the month, it's very close to Porima, Gamma Virginis. What about Mercury? It's visible in the pre-dawn sky, shining at magnitude plus 0.6, down to the lower left of Saturn, as December begins. It brightens to minus 0.8 magnitudes during the first couple of weeks, but each morning is a little lower above the horizon as dawn breaks, and it will be lost from view by mid-December. Is going to pass behind the sun on December the 29th, so it won't be visible for some time. Well, finally, Venus. It's shining at minus 4.9 as December begins. It's actually a beacon in the western sky, and I saw it as I was driving to give an astronomy talk in Wolverhampton the other evening. One could not miss it. Sadly a bit, at this time of year, the ecliptic is at quite a shallow angle to the horizon, and even worse, Venus with a declination of about minus 27, is very close to its furthest southern declination. So it never actually gets that high in elevation. As the sun sets, its elevation will only be about 15 degrees. But the good news is, because it's so bright, you can actually see it for at least an hour before that, if it's clear. It's actually quite interesting to observe how its phase thins from about 30 to 11% during the first three weeks of the month, whilst its angular size increases from 38 to 53 arc seconds, so making a very thin crescent. In fact, by month's end, the phase is just 4%, and it's almost 
60 arc seconds across, almost one arc minute. It's quite nice just to look at those phases of Venus and basically make some of the observations that were made by Galileo, which enable him to show that Venus must be orbiting the Sun. Venus will actually pass in front of the Sun, which is called inferior conjunction, on the 11th of next month. Well, what about the highlights? Well, as I've said, we're hoping that Comet Ison might be the major highlight of December. It passed very close to the Sun and behind the Sun on the 28th of November. So during early December, Ison's tail may be visible in the pre-dawn sky down to the lower left of a thin crescent moon. Saturn and Mercury. That's on the first of the month. So that'll be a lovely thing to see. Of course, we don't know how bright it's going to be. The nucleus and coma of Ison would not be visible then, but if it's produced a good tail, that could well be. So start looking for it at the very beginning of December. As the days progress, it will rise higher in the sky as dawn breaks, visible to the left of Saturn. By mid-month, shining at perhaps third magnitude, it should be visible in the east-southeast while it is still dark in the morning, that is, before we get twilight. It continues to rise higher in the pre-dawn sky, but at the same time is expected to reduce in brightness. On the 22nd of December, it passes just 5 degrees to the west of the globular cluster M13 in Hercules. As January draws closer, it becomes a circumpolar object lying towards Ursa Major. Now, it didn't brighten as much as one had hoped on its way in towards the sun. But really, as it's a, a sun-grazing comet, it gets very close, we have no real idea of what might happen once it's past the sun. It could have broken up and been not much to see. It could, in fact, be very spectacular. Let's hope for the latter. There's a lunar occultation on the evening of the 11th. From about 10.05pm, depending a bit where you live in the UK, it's 10.07 in Edinburgh and 10.16 in London. The 4.3 magnitude star Epsilon Piscium in Pisces will be occulted by the waxing gibbous moon when it's some 30 degrees high in the southern sky. It's occulted by the dark side, the unlit side of the moon. So it's actually quite nice to see the star blink out suddenly as it becomes hidden by the dark limb. Obviously it will reoccur on the other side of the moon later, but as that's bright, it won't be nearly so interesting to see. So that's about 10 o'clock on the 11th evening of this month. We have two meteor showers in December. Around the 14th and 15th after midnight, we have the Geminids, so-called because the radiant, that's from where they appear to come from, is in Gemini. And then on December the 22nd, 23rd, we have the Ursid meteor shower, which, as you might expect, has a radiant in Actually, Ursa Minor is quite close to the star Kokab, which is the brightest star in Ursa Minor, which is hence the name they have. Now, this year, sadly, is not a great year for observing the Geminids, because it corresponds to a waxing gibbous moon fairly high in Aries, and that will hinder our view until rather late on in the morning. But it sets at about 5am, so there might be at least one hour of darker skies to observe the Geminids. So perhaps get up fairly early in the morning and have a look to see if you can see them. Obviously, an observing location well away from towns or cities will pay dividends. 
These are relatively slow-moving meteors, and they arise from debris released by the asteroid 3200 Phaeton. That's actually unusual, because most meteor showers come from comets. The radiant, obviously in Germany, is quite close to the bright star Castor. Again, on the night of the 22nd, 23rd, it's actually a little better because, in fact, the, the waning gibbous moon, waning, not waxing, is opposite in the sky to Ursa Major, will not be too obtrusive. The radiant, as I said, is in Ursa Minor. There aren't that many meteors per hour, though, perhaps 10 to 15. But sometimes, some years, there's a far higher rate when it looks as though the Earth crosses a little concentration of particles in the orbit of the comet. So it's actually well worth having a look, should it be clear. So after midnight on the 22nd, 23rd of December. So let's keep our fingers crossed for Ison, and I wish you a happy month's observing. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Antipodean listeners, here's John Field with the Southern Night Sky. Kia ora, and welcome to the December Dogcast, coming to you from Carter Observatory, Wellington, New Zealand. Our evening skies dominated in the north by the constellations of Taurus, Orion and its two hunting dogs, Canis Major and Canis Minor. The summer Milky Way stretches through these constellations and along our southern horizon. Although not as bright as our winter Milky Way, it still exhibits the mottled glow of bright and dark regions when observed from a dark location. The bright regions are the combined light of many distant stars that form our galaxy. The dark patches are clouds of interstellar gas and dust that block the light from the more distant stars. Brighter parts of the Milky Way may be either star clusters that are resolved in binoculars and telescopes, but some bright parts, even the largest telescopes, appear as misty clouds, called nebulae, coming from the Latin word meaning cloud, and many may have stars embedded in them. One of the most famous nebulae sits in the constellation of Orion and is called M42. Orion is the mighty hunter killed by a scorpion and placed into the night sky. For southern hemisphere observers, Orion hangs upside down and is commonly called the cooking pot. In the north after sunset, the bottom of the pot is formed by a line of three bright stars. These are three blue giant stars ranging in distance from 700 to 1,300 light years away from us. At right and above the bottom of the pot, there is a second line of fainter stars, and this marks one of the pot's sides. The middle star of this line appears as a hazy cloud and is a great nebula. It is part of a much larger dark cloud of interstellar material. Binoculars and telescopes reveal more detail and long exposure images will reveal a range of colours. Beneath the pot is a red star. This is Betelgeuse and it marks one of the shoulders of Orion. Above the pot is a bright star Rigel marking one of his feet. This blue-white giant star is about 900 light years away and has a companion star that can be seen in medium-sized telescopes. To the west of Orion we find the zodiac constellation of Taurus. A distinct upside-down view of stars forms his head. The bright star Aldebaran marks one of his eyes. Sitting about 70 light years away, this giant star has a diameter of 44 times that of our sun. The fainter stars of Taurus's head belong to a more distant cluster of stars called the Hyades. Further west is a glittering group of stars called the Pleiades that mark the bull's back. Tamari they are Matariki, the little eyes. On a clear dark night, at least seven stars can be seen shimmering in our sky. Seven by fifty binoculars reveal many more. Crux, the southern cross, is low in the southeastern sky and an obvious dark cloud sits beside it. Called the Colsac Nebula, it is about 600 light years away. These dark clouds can collapse under the pull of gravity and other dynamic pressures and form stars. There is another type of object visible as clouds in our southern sky. 
called the large and small metronet clouds, they are in fact satellite galaxies of our own Milky Way, about 200,000 light years away from us. The large cloud can be found not far from the bright star Canopus, and it can be seen in the southeast. The large cloud is a great target for binoculars and small telescopes with many faint star clusters and nebulae to discover. Not far from the large cloud is a small metallic cloud, and near this is a bright globular cluster, 47 to Carni. Visible as a hazy star next to the SMC, binoculars reveal a golf ball shape of stars that brighten to a brilliant core. A second fainter globular cluster can be found using small telescopes close to the SMC, called NGC 362, it is nice to compare it and 47 to Carni. We have two annual meteor showers happening during December. On the 6th of December, the Phoenicians reach their peak. With a radiant within the constellation of Phoenix, not far from Achenar, this shower produces a few metres per hour, but occasionally a high rate may be seen. With this constellation high overhead, it is well placed for observing. The other meteor shower, peaking on the 14th, is the Geminids. This is one of the best meteor showers of the year, but we are not well placed with unit here in New Zealand. The radiant of Gemini below and near to the star Castor, the lower of the two bright stars of Gemini. The radiant rises about 3am in the morning, and due to its low height, we only see about 50% of the meteors compared to those in the Northern Hemisphere. Due to the extended nature of the shower, viewing for a week either side of the state is worthwhile. Viewing will be further hampered by the almost full moon, which will be on the 17th. Also sitting in Gemini is the planet Jupiter. Appearing as a brilliant white star, Jupiter reveals its largest moons when viewed through binoculars. December the 21st marks the summer solstice in the southern hemisphere and marks the time of our longest daylight hours and shortest nighttime hours. The sun had a recent increase in activity and this may be the final burst for this cycle. The current cycle is showing up many surprises and this cycle may be the weakest for over 40 years. And recent observations indicate that the sun's magnetic field is in the process of flipping and may do so over the next few weeks. Comet Ison has now left our southern skies and is hopefully putting on a good display in the northern hemisphere. The comet did not live up to some earlier predictions, but underwent a sudden brightening in late November to naked eye visibility. It has been a pleasure bringing you the night sky in 2013, and the team here at Carter Observatory wish you clear skies, and we look forward to another year of stargazing in 2014. Thanks for that, John. Now on to the feedback. And for starters, this week we have another postcard, and it's one that's made Christina extremely jealous. Uh, it's got a picture of an amazing Caribbean beach on the front with a palm tree and a sailboat and coconuts and a sun lounger and everything that you really want in Manchester in December. <laughs> uh, and it's from St. Vincent and the Grenadines in the West Indies, which is somewhere I'd love to visit. So I'm going to read it out. It's not been as good for stargazing as I'd hoped, as the nights have been a bit cloudy, unlike the days, fortunately. Enjoying the Joycast and trying to catch up with the episodes. Been playing with an iPad app, Starwalk, to help identify stars and it's been really helpful. Not looking forward to returning to UK weather. Rod, normally from Glasgow. Well, thanks a lot, Rod, and yeah, I hope that uh, St. Vincent makes a nice change from Glasgow. We're all very jealous here in the Jodcast studio. Exceptionally jealous. <laughs> I want to be on that sun lounger. Just <laughs> we have an email from Daniel Sanar who says... As a total science podcast nut, I just wanted to say thank you for an excellent show. Keep it up and jod on. Best regards from Sweden. So thank you very much for that, Daniel. And as usual, thanks for all our new likers on Facebook and for all the retweets and follow Fridays on Twitter. On another note, as of last episode, we have announced that the forum will be retired. Uh, many of you commented on, about this on, on Twitter and 
we may or may not have an archive page uh, for the forum up. We're still working on it, so we'll let you know with more details as soon as um, we have them. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. All that's left is to say thanks to Dr. Emilia Calabrese for the interview. The editors were Indy Leclerc, Mark Perver, and Francesca Lucini. And the producer was Indy Leclerc. Until next time, jod on! Oh.